I'm Sarah Parkhouse, a British Academy postdoctoral fellow at the University of Manchester. Today we're thinking about early Christian attitudes towards Jesus and the Jewish God, and asking, how did ideas about God change among early Christians? In the Gospel of John, Jesus describes himself being sent from the Father to do his Father's work. But who exactly was this Father? And in what form was Jesus sent into the world? Today we will think about how some of the earliest Christian writers answered these questions, about how they navigated the novelty integral to the Christian message and its relationship to the antiquity of the Hebrew Scriptures, or the Old Testament as Christians call it, and how they understood just how it was that God could become flesh and blood. Christian theological speculation began to really take shape in the second century. There was no orthodox position as such, and Christian thinkers, writers and theologians argued fervently about all sorts of theological matters, from God, Jesus and salvation, to creation, the afterlife and the end of the world. When thinking about theology and religion, in a broader sense, if we only represent the position that came to be orthodox, the winners of such disputes, we will never truly understand what was at stake in the arguments that have shaped the nature of Christianity today and a large part of the modern world. These issues inform Western history from the Roman period onwards, from wars to political policies, intra-religious relationships and how Christians are asked to live their lives. If the orthodox position was contingent on external factors, we might ask, what would the world be like if one of the other early Christian positions had become dominant? How might the relationship between Judaism and Christianity have been different? And what might have been some of, those con- some of the consequences of this difference? What would Christianity look like if the story of Jesus ended at Mark 16.8, which the earliest version did? Or if Christianity didn't have the creation narrative of the Old Testament, which some Christians did not consider to be part of their religion. These might be issues to think about come the end of this podcast. In the second century, attitudes towards the God of the Hebrew Bible were varied. Whereas Christian thinkers who were later deemed to be orthodox argued that the Jewish God was the father of Jesus, many other Christians took a different view. But before we delve into the various portrayals of the Father, it is helpful to think about the Son, and to ask how exactly God became human, if he did at all. Whether the historical Jesus saw himself as divine or human, and his relationship to his Father, was a matter of great debate. These issues were central at the infamous Council of Nicaea, when intellectuals and church authorities came together in the 4th century to debate in what sense Jesus could be said to be God and to reach a consensus. But it is the 2nd century that we will focus on today, when very few of today's central tenets of Christian theology were certain, including whether Jesus actually took on human flesh and who his dad was. One such issue was the question about Jesus' body. Was it real? The answer to this had particular implications for both suffering and the resurrection. If Jesus wasn't really flesh, did he suffer on the cross? If he didn't, 
What did the crucifixion mean? If he wasn't resurrected into flesh, what does that mean for the general resurrection of all people? The earliest written gospel, the Gospel of Mark, sheds little light on these questions. As Mark does not begin with an account of Jesus' birth, Jesus may be interpreted as an average Galilean male who only encounters God at his baptism at 1, 10 to 11, when the Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove and a voice comes from heaven saying, You are my Son, with you I am well pleased. The divinity that descends at the baptism then abandons Jesus when he hangs on the cross. At 15.34, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the earliest version of the Gospel of Mark ended at 16.8, with the women meeting the angel at the tomb, who tells them that Jesus has been raised. But the risen Jesus never appears, and so Mark offers no insight into the resurrection body. If Jesus was only the Son of God between his baptism and crucifixion, what type of body was raised? Some early Christian theologians developed this line of thinking into the position that Jesus had been adopted by God in his adult life. Now it must be noted that the act of adoption in the Roman world was far from insignificant. Emperors adopted sons that they wanted to become the new emperor, and so God's adoption of Jesus gave him a position of extremely high prestige. But ultimately, Jesus was a human who lacked divinity. The Gospels of Matthew and Luke are also grappling with questions about the nature of Jesus' body and his relationship to the Father. They answer these in part by adding the account of Mary, a young virgin woman, woman who was impregnated by the Holy Spirit, and this God was unambiguously Jesus' father. Matthew describes Jesus' ancestry through Jewish roots, chasing the genealogy from Abraham to Joseph despite Joseph not being Jesus' biological father. Perhaps another indication that adoption was important in this context. Luke traces Jesus' genealogy through the maternal line. Like in Matthew, the Luke and Mary is a virgin girl who conceives Jesus through the Holy Spirit. At Luke 1.35, the angel Gabriel declares to her that her child will be the son of God. By inserting an infancy narrative into the Gospel story, Matthew and Luke demonstrate that Jesus is divine from his birth, fending off any potential concerns about adoption claims. The Gospel of John takes this even, even further, tracing Jesus' divinity to primordial time. John describes him as the Word, or the Logos, who existed with God in the beginning before the act of creation. At a certain moment in history, this word becomes flesh. The Gospels are embedded in Jewish scripture. Jesus' lineage is Jewish and his conception is from the Holy Spirit. So how then was it possible for some of Jesus' followers to think otherwise? With no closed canon of authoritative scripture to appeal to, they had to think through what they knew of Jesus and the Jewish scriptures. The New Testament did not exist, and people continued to write accounts of Jesus' life, death and teachings, whilst also editing those that would come to be in the Bible. The endings of the Gospels of Mark and John, for example, 
were added around the second century. Authors also wrote exegetical essays or letters explaining to their readers how, the, how to be Christian and how to believe the correct things and distinguish with them from what they deemed to be heresy. Heretics, they claimed, used these other gospels and thought nasty things about the nature of Jesus' body, the virgin birth, the crucifixion and the resurrection. These authors admitted that heresy and orthodoxy were not quite so easy to distinguish as to many different Christian speculations looked really quite similar. They also claimed that such heresies were flourishing. Now more popular than the adoptionism position that we discussed earlier was the idea that Jesus never really became fully human. Scholars also often use the term docetism to describe the idea that Jesus only appeared to be human. This term docetism derives from the Greek verb dokein, which means to appear, and has been used to describe a number of loosely connected ideas in early Christianity. At one end of the extreme is the idea that Jesus appeared on earth as a kind of apparition or ghost. He was unable to eat or drink or to do other things that embodied humans usually do. And it is possible that this idea formed the basis for the opposition that we see in 1 and 2 John. At the other end of the spectrum is the idea that Jesus was human, but his humanity was not relevant for salvation. The idea that Jesus did not have a fully human body might derive from the transfiguration account, as in Matthew, Mark and Luke, or Jesus' ability to walk unharmed through a crowd of persecutors at Luke 4.30. Interestingly, one version of this story that we find in the Gospel Harmony has Jesus flying to his freedom. Jesus' resurrection body also has some supernatural elements. He appears in another form in Mark 16.12. He is not recognised by some of his closest disciples in Luke 24, and he is able to appear inside locked rooms in John 20. Both sides of the debate regarding Jesus' divinity or humanity shared a name. They wanted to emphasise Jesus' power or potency. For some, he became fully human, and that's what made him so distinctive, especially in comparison to the Greco-Roman gods, who sometimes took human form, but were never considered to participate in the human condition. For other Christians, what was distinctive about Jesus was just how powerful and godlike he was. He probably couldn't become fully human because he was just too powerful, and the human condition would have constrained him and his power. A variety of positions put forward in the second century along a spectrum between a totally disembodied God who descended to earth and a human man adopted by God for a short period of time. But the question we will now turn to is, who was this God? Another major issue among early Christians was how Jesus was related to the God of the Old Testament. The act of interpreting the Old Testament through Jesus was among the earliest Christian texts. At 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, Paul explains that Jesus Christ died and was raised according to the scriptures. The gospel writers frequently use the Hebrew scriptures to present the Christ narrative, 
framing Jesus' ministry as the fulfilment of prophecy. In Luke 24:44, the risen Jesus explains to the disciples that everything written about him in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He presents himself as the true interpreter of the Hebrew scriptures. Church fathers, writing in Greek and Latin, explained in detail how Old Testament prophecies were about Jesus, and so the Hebrew scriptures became the Old Testament, the first part of the Christian canon. But like the debate about Jesus' flesh, in the second century not everyone agreed with each other. There were a number of early Christian thinkers, scholars or groups that argued that Jesus was not the son of the Jewish God, but that he came from a different God. These followers of Jesus differentiated between the Jewish God who created the world and the father of Jesus, who was a higher God and a better God. Jesus came to the world not to fulfil the Jewish scriptures, but to reveal the unknown God. This wasn't a uniform or straightforward point of view. There were different versions, which often competed with each other. Today we will look at three positions that presented the Christian God as very different from the Jewish one, and consider how they presented this idea differently. One very prominent Christian thinker in the second century was called Marcion. None of Marcion's works survive today, but scholars have reconstructed his theology mainly through the writings of his opponents, namely a North African theologian named Tertullian. Marcion was a devout follower of Jesus, but when reading the Hebrew scriptures in his church, he found that he was so offended by numerous passages from them that he thought it was only right to separate the God that they presented and the novelty of Jesus' message. And the separation of law and gospel became a central point of Marcion's theology. Marcion put forward the idea that suddenly and unexpectedly, in the 15th year of Tiberius, a good God appeared in the form of his son Jesus. This idea proved pretty popular, and Marcion founded a new church that rivalled the Catholic Church for centuries. Marcion set forth a theology based on a very close reading of the Old Testament, which he took literally. He concluded that the God of the Old Testament could not be the father of Jesus. The Old Testament speaks of a creator who is a harsh ruler with a thirst for blood. For Marcion, this was so dissimilar to the message that Jesus brought to humanity that he could not be referring to the same person when he referred to his father. The Old Testament wasn't the only text that Marcion rejected. He didn't use Matthew, Mark or John. Rather, he used only one gospel, which was a heavily redacted version of the Gospel of Luke, with most, if not all, references to the Hebrew Scriptures taken out. Marcion thought that Jesus' words at Luke 6.43 characterised the harsh God and the good God of Jesus. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. The bad God, then, could not bear a good son. Another of Marcion's favourite sayings from the Gospel of Luke is what we find at 5.37-39, concerning the risks of putting new wine into old wineskins. The good wine symbolised the novel God, which no one in their right mind would associate with the old wine, 
i.e. the old God of the Hebrew Scriptures. The old wine and the bad fruit were symbolic of the Jewish law. The good fruit and the new wine represented the gospel. If the creator of the world is far from perfect, then logically so is his creation. For Marcion, Jesus could not be a real human being, since material flesh was made by the creator. Marcion used Paul's words in Romans 8.3 to argue that Jesus came in the likeness of the flesh, focusing on the word likeness, which he contrasted with real embodiment. Marcion therefore rejected the virgin birth story, and the first two chapters of Luke were not part of his gospel. For Marcion, Christ came only in a spiritual body, almost like an angel. Marcion rejected the material, created world in his own life too. He preached asceticism, and Marcionites did not marry. They practised strict dietary rules, and they were willing martyrs. Now Marcion was far from the only follower of Christ who considered the, old, the God of the Old Testament to be a different God to the Father of Jesus. There are a group of texts that are sometimes labelled as Gnostic or Sethian that retell stories from the Hebrew Bible with a very different slant. The term Sethian derives from the fact that they often emphasise Adam and Eve's third son, Seth, and consider him to be the spiritual ancestor of their target audience. These texts often contain elaborate mythologies with dozens of heavenly beings and an emphasis on secret knowledge, mediated through Seth or Jesus. The most famous of these texts is called the Apocryphon of John, of which four versions were found hidden away in a clay jar in Egypt, and are now part of what is known as the Nag Hammadi Codices. These ancient books contained a number of separate texts that were Coptic translations and copies of writings dated to the second century. The collection remained hidden until the middle of the 20th century and caused a flurry of interest upon its discovery. In the Apocryphon of John, Jesus is a character who retells the stories of Genesis, including the creation and the flood. At many points, Jesus' retelling contradicts the version as found in the Old Testament. And Jesus frequently claims that the true history of the world is not as Moses said. Jesus explains that there is a transcendent deity who is the source of everything, but the God who created the world is a different being, who was himself created through a series of mishaps. This lower creator God has only slight awareness of the divine realm, of which he is not part, and that is why in Exodus he calls out, I am a jealous God, and there is no other God beside me, to which the narrator of the Apocryphon of John responds, If there were no other God over him, of whom would he be jealous? He is not just ignorant and jealous, but he is also nasty and cruel. He is described to be in the form of a lion-faced serpent with eyes that flash fire. And his creation, the world, resembles his own characteristics. Although it is modelled on the divine realm to some extent, it is deficient and hostile. The evil creator God and his helpers create Adam, but beings from the divine realm breathe divinity into him. The creator God imprisons him in a body of flesh, where he is ignorant of the divine realm and subject to negative emotions, suffering and death. 
Eve is later created and raped by the creator God to produce Cain and Abel. Seth, on the other hand, is the child of Adam and Eve and is a spiritual being. At several points in the narrative, help from the divine realm enters the material world in attempt to aid humanity. And in the end, the book reveals that after a period of instruction and purification, each human soul will ascend to the divine realm. Jesus has entered the world in order to reveal this divine realm, in contrast to the lower created realm. How can this retelling of a creation narrative with a different God and an errant Moses have anything to do with Orthodox Christianity? And in many ways, it doesn't. But yet, the Apocryphon of John is grappling with the same questions that all Christians were trying to work out when forming their religion. How is it that humans can suffer if God is compassionate? Is the God of Jesus the God who boasts that he is not a jealous God in the Pentateuch? When Jesus says to his disciples that he will now reveal to them all the scriptures, the Gospel writers do not actually say what it is that Jesus says. Is there any way that Jesus could have explained to them that everything Moses said was wrong? At the heart of the Apocryphon of John lies a God who has a deep love for humanity and does not want people to suffer. He is just not the same God as the God that created the world. The third perspective on the Jewish God that we will look at is found in another 2nd century text called Ptolemy's Letter to Flora. Flora is a Christian woman who desires higher instruction into her religion. Ptolemy is her teacher, and he writes her a letter in which he discusses the relationship of Jesus to the Jewish God. Ptolemy radically departs from the Sethians and Marcion, and does not cast the God of the Hebrew Scriptures as evil, but nor is he the highest God. Ptolemy discusses the Jewish God in terms of a lawgiver, and he argues that the lawgiver cannot be the perfect God, as the law still needs to be fulfilled by the Saviour. But neither can the lawgiver be akin to the devil, as the law abolishes injustice. In the first instance, then, the lawgiver is called the God of Justice. The letter is intended to present the true Christian understanding of the law as a middle way between two equally erroneous extremes. Some of the law, Ptolemy explains, was ordained by the highest God, but not all of it. The nature of the law is parallel to the nature of the world, which also cannot be attributed to an unjust power. Due to the nature of the text being a letter, and Ptolemy acting as Flora's instructor, there is a lot which is not fully explained. Some things he assumes that Flora already knows, and so we are not privy to it today. Other things he deems that she is not yet ready to know. So this letter gives us just a snippet into Ptolemy's theology regarding Jesus and the Jewish God, which sits as a kind of halfway house between embracing and abandoning the God of the Jewish scriptures. Now today Jesus is known to be fully human and fully divine, and to be part of a trinity that includes the God revealed in the Old Testament. But what are now central tenets of Christianity were not obvious to everyone from the beginning. They had to be argued for and developed in response to a myriad of nuanced competing opinions. Fundamental ideas about God were continually debated in the earliest centuries, and through intense intellectual work, as well as theological, social and political forces, 
central beliefs, beliefs of Christian theology were formed. The Jewish God became part of Christianity as the father of the incarnated son. Mm-hmm.